0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, Church. Remain standing with me this morning as we read the 16th Psalm. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore.
1: Would you pray with me? Father God, it is every bit as much a miracle for you to allow a, a broken and busted and sinful man like me to stand in this pulpit seeking to handle and deliver your word it is that is no less a miracle than you breathing stars but well, i don't don't know how you're going to use selfish man like me in the moments to come but your people need to hear your voice so father I will not open my eyes I will not deliver this message until you empty me of myself Father, these people they cannot hear rightly if you don't likewise empty them. So Father help us to die to ourselves now. Both the speaker and the hearer. And every one of us gathered here in this place. We need you to speak. We need you to give us ears to listen. Then we need you to transform us by that word. We trust that you will do this, Father, for it's to your glory. And it's the name of your son that we ask it. Father, glorify yourself now. It's in your Son's precious name that we pray these things. Amen. So last Sunday morning was a bit of a, it was a bit of a departure from our normal pattern. For the last two months, we've been studying the events of early Good Friday morning. We've been studying the betrayal of Jesus by one of his twelve closest companions. We've been studying the arrest of Jesus by the Roman guards. We've been studying the abandonment of Jesus by all the rest of his followers. We've been studying the three-stage religious trial of Jesus by the Sanhedrin. We've been studying the three-stage political trial of Jesus by Pilate and Herod. And frankly, we've been studying the mocking of Jesus by most everyone involved. Truly, we have found ourselves surrounded by the humiliation of Christ, hour upon unrelenting hour of mockery and shame. We must not be caught off guard by this. We must never lose sight of the fact that simply by nature of the incarnation, the Son coming to be born of a virgin, the Holy One of God coming to live under the law, the omnipotent Lord being joined to weak and frail human flesh. There has truly never been a greater condescension a greater step downward than what we see in the coming of Jesus Christ to us. Simply by nature of living fully as a man, every single moment of Jesus' life, from the lowly manger to the borrowed tomb, every single bit of it is marked by humiliation. It's marked by suffering so that you and I might be saved and exalted. It should therefore be absolutely no surprise to us whatsoever that we find as we come to the end of Jesus' earthly life. We stand in the shadow of the cross and the crucifixion. It just, it just lurks for us just over the horizon there. It should be no surprise to us then that the humiliation and the suffering, it only increases. We see it here building towards a crescendo. And so with the goal in mind last week of not getting so caught up in the specifics, it's so easy to get caught up just in the specific acts of Jesus' shame and suffering and humiliation that we can miss the greater spiritual picture. We can miss what God really has for us to see. And so we spent our last Lord's Day together just pulling back the curtain just a bit. I tried to show you here that what we see in Scripture is Jesus Christ submits to the will of the Father. In his shame and in his suffering, in his humiliation, what you're actually witnessing is Jesus Christ charging hard after joy. Jesus hadn't forsaken pleasure. Jesus hasn't forsaken Joy. As the author of Hebrews says, what we see in Jesus Christ is he runs this race with great endurance. Enduring even to the point of shameful death upon a cross. That what we see is that Jesus Christ does all of this for the joy that is set before him. Again, I say we're not watching Jesus forsake joy. We're watching him increase it. In his suffering. In his humiliation. He knows that this is the path to his greatest exaltation that today he reigns at the right hand of the Father, having been given a name above every other name, a name at which every knee shall bow, because he walked through this path that we study this morning. So from there, I pled with God to help you to see. I pled with God to help me to see that he's called us to do the very same thing, that we too can suffer well, that we too can suffer to the glory of God. Not only this, but that we can be joined with men like Paul and Silas and Peter and Stephen. That we can rejoice. We can find ourselves truly glad, even in the middle of our own suffering. For great is our reward in heaven. For we know that we can count ourselves blessed if we would be those who would suffer with Christ. Because we know that someday we too shall come into glory with him. I pray that that message took root in your heart. I pray that it resounded through your mind throughout the week. If you weren't here with us last week, I'd ask you to go back. Go back and listen to that sermon. Because the promise to you that you can find joy, the promise to you that you can find gladness in the middle of true and abiding suffering, it's going to sound real hollow. It's going to leave most people utterly unconvinced unless you see that God's actually said it in his word. So the argument from Scripture goes like this. And I know we just spent an hour last week. We didn't even get to the text last week because we spent an hour trying to unpack this thought. And guess what? I'm going right back. Because it took me months, if not years, to understand this. And I continue to try to trust it. I continue to try to truly trust and believe and live like this is the truth. And so I will do my best to be concise here. I've asked a couple of you to pray for me this morning because Whenever I get wrapped up in this, this is the greatest thought I've ever had. It wasn't, didn't originate with me, I've confessed that to you. Hope you haven't shown up this morning for some new original thought. Everything that I have comes from God's word and faithful men that have shown me what God's word has said. And Yet what happens is I get so excited whenever I speak about these things that I begin to stumble, uh, stumble and stammer and stutter. I get all, all out of whack. So I'm, I'm gonna do my best to stick here and be concise so we can actually get to the text this morning. But I know that repetition is helpful in this because I know that the world lies to you. I know that your heart lies to you. And so the argument from Scripture goes like this, that the center of God's universe is God. God's greatest passion, God's ultimate purpose is his own glory. Glory is just a succinct word. It's just an easy, single word that points to the majesty or the value or the weight or the worth or the beauty of God. If you take all of God's infinite perfections, this isn't just one singular attribute. Basically, everything that God is, this is his glory. How do you put a value on such a thing? How do you rightly identify such a thing? Yet God's referred to it as his glory. Dear friends, you must know that God is ferociously jealous for the sake of his glory. That's the message of Scripture. That's the end for which he has created literally everything that exists. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not share with another. Now this message, again I say it runs throughout all the Scripture. It marks all of creation. And you must recognize that for God to take anything else, for God to make anything else his focus, for God to have the same zeal that he has for his glory, for anything else in all creation, this would be to place the lesser above the greater. This would be to trade down. And according to the message of Romans 1.23, this is the epitome of sin, the root of evil, the root of foolishness is to trade the greater for the lesser. The gifts from God over the God who has given them. The glory of God in exchange for the things that he has made. Think about it. Do you celebrate a man that trades treasures for dust? Do you praise a man that loves a snail more than his wife? Would we want this from God? So not only is this God's greatest passion, not only is this God's ultimate purpose, it must be ours too. That you and I literally exist to reflect the glory of God to all his creation. That he has called us as we recognize his beauty and his worth and his weight and his majesty to give expression to that. As a fulfillment of our own joy. as an su- expression of the joy that we find in him. We are literally called to magnify, to reflect that glory to all the rest of the world. And you must know that this teaching is incredibly offensive to most. In a world full of people that grew up with baby on board stickers, In a world full of people that were convinced by your mommy that you were the center of the universe. It is incredibly offensive to hear a message like this. Even for Christian men and women. Because you know that for you to become the center of the universe, this is selfish and it will lead to your own damnation. You know that a life filled with love of self, it will leave you lonely and broken and miserable. But with all due respect, that's because you're not God. You see, the real trouble, the ultimate trouble with love of self, the ultimate trouble with being consumed with self, isn't just that you fail to love God and love your neighbor the way that you should. It's that you're selling yourself out for something that is less. You understand this? Because for most of my life, I didn't. Even most of my life that I called myself a Christian, I would say, wait, okay, so let me get this straight. It is sinful and selfish for me to be consumed by love of Josh, but it is right and admirable for God to be driven by love of God. And he created me to turn around and punish me if I don't love him the way that he loves himself. Is that the Christian message? The easy answer is, he's God and you're not. He gets to make the rules. He gets to determine what is righteous and what is sinful. But frankly, that's not gonna get you very far. I'm the daddy and I said so, he's got the right to say that. But living like that won't get you very far. So it seems to me that maybe there's a message to be found in the teaching of Jesus Christ. Because what I found when when he talks about the kingdom of God, when he talks about seeing the glory of God, he compares it to a pearl of a measurable price, a hidden treasure of unparalleled value. Jesus seems to paint a picture of a man seeing God as he is. And then from there, he seems to paint this man as, as recognizing the infinite glory, the unsurpassed worth of this one that he now sees and then joyfully letting go of everything else so they can have more of that. What I see in the teaching of Jesus Christ, what I see in the saints of the Bible, is a whole lot less about dutiful submission. It's a whole lot less about determined self-abandonment. What I seem to see in Scripture is somebody actually seeing something, more specifically seeing someone and being so enthralled with the thing that they see that they excitedly let loose of everything else to grab hold of him. What I see in scripture is more like a picture of a little boy playing with blocks when his daddy comes home from work and he gladly throws him to the ground that he can run into his arms. Or perhaps more clearly. I love those videos online where a little child that's been born deaf. The parents have always been speaking. Then they get a a cochlear implant or whatever it is. And that first time they hear the voice of their father. Hello, son. And there's nothing else in all the world in that moment. Have you ever seen those pictures, those videos of those people that are born colorblind? Amazing technology. They've they've got these glasses. They can they can put glasses on these people and now they see colors for the first time. And they don't want to look at TV screens. They don't want to look at their phone. They want to go outside and see the trees. They want to see a sunset, and they're they're moved with tears. And again, I say, there's nothing else in all the world but that. The tree had always been beautiful. The sunset had always been gorgeous. The Father's voice had always been there. But for the first point in their life, they heard and they saw, and that's all they wanted. You couldn't drag them away from what they had seen because it was truly glorious. That's the picture I see in Scripture. A whole lot less, I'm the daddy and I said so. this picture is true, then you can begin to see why God's command to love him, his command to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, his demanding that we make his glory our ultimate purpose, you can see that this is actually a divine invitation to include all that you have in enjoying him. It's hugging your wife with both arms. It's looking at the Grand Canyon with both eyes open. He's calling us to chase after joy. He's calling us to not settle for the things that are last. Do you understand this? The greatest commandment is the call to your greatest joy. For those who haven't been given eyes to see or ears to hear like this, not only do they dishonor God by settling for something rather than him, but they rob themselves of true and genuine satisfaction. That's the story of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. We see in this man the richest and wisest man that had ever lived. Man who literally lived his life with all the things that this world tells you you want. It's a case study. Do you understand this? This man is a case study. He's a picture. God, in his grace, has said, the things that the world calls you to charge after, let me show you what it looks like to get all of them. And at the end of this life, he says... It's a vapor. It's a mist. It is empty futility. It is cotton candy on my tongue. It tastes good, but it disappears in a moment and leaves me completely unfulfilled. It's not that the things are bad. They're gifts from God. But they were never meant to satisfy because they are not him. There were pointers, there were signs, there were assurances that I am here and I'm giving you good things, but that sweetness on your lips is to remind you of my word. The joy that you feel in this moment, it's meant to excite you for something greater that I have to offer you in all eternity. Dear friends, I tell you that if Solomon were standing here today, if Solomon were with us in this moment, what he would say to you is, don't stop. Don't settle for the lesser stuff. Don't pull back. not money. Not wisdom, not food, not drink, not women, not even your own health will satisfy. Keep coming. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the language of Scripture. See this invitation in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? This is right in the middle of Isaiah's promising of the coming of Christ. The suffering servant who will come, who will win the victory. We don't know how much he fully understood about Messiah. And yet we know that he was speaking of him. And so it should be no surprise then that when Jesus comes, he tells us, whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, I say, the call to come to God is the call to be satisfied. It's the call to quit being that stupid little kid that opens the Christmas present and plays with the box while you leave the toy sitting in the corner. So what does any of this have to do with suffering? I told you last week that suffering is nothing more than the loss of things. Suffering is nothing more than the letting loose of the things that you enjoy in this world, whether it's health or wealth or relationship or whatever. And when you come to recognize that these things that you have lost are the lesser things, when you come to recognize that these things that you lost were never going to fully satisfy you, no matter how good they were, no matter how long you were able to hold on to them, when you recognize that they are not Him, that you are built that you are literally created for eternal joy, joys that we cannot even fathom in this life with him, then you begin to recognize that whether you throw those things down excitedly at the first sound of your father's voice or whether the world jostles you and they fall to the ground, that all they've done is free you up for more of him. They've freed up your hands and in this an incredible opportunity An incredible opportunity that you may receive more of him. That's what scripture says. That for those who suffer with Christ, for those who walk through this life, who walk through this loss while keeping their eyes fixed on him, for those who suffer for the sake of his name, for those who endure persecution and pain and sorrow and loss, refusing to abandon the path of righteousness, refusing to go around suffering because it means dishonoring him. For those that do this, You recognize it in the giving up of these things, these things that the whole world fights for. You realize this. We're playing different games. If you're following Jesus Christ, you and the world are playing a totally different game with different goals, with different prizes, with different motivations. But yet, as you let go of the things that the world is charging hard after, you gladly let go of them. As you rejoice in him into letting go of these things, even if it wasn't your own decision, you say both with your actions and with your words that he's worth more. He's worth more than whatever I had to give up that I might see his glory. I count it as a blessing to lay all these things down. And in this, you recognize that in this, you are literally fulfilling the very reason for your existence. People will often say, I just wish I knew what the purpose of life was. I wish I knew what God's will for my life was. It's this. I don't know what shape it's going to take, but it is this. You're fulfilling your purpose when you suffer well. You're glorifying God when you suffer well. Dear friends, you need to understand that God is glorified in the powerful songs of praise by the holy seraphim seated around his throne. And he is equally, if not more, glorified in the silent, obedient suffering of a single mother. If she cries out for mercy, but refuses to abandon righteousness because she wants him more than she wants ease of life. He's worth more than relief. I say to you, suffering sisters, I say to you, exhausted brothers, based on the authority of God's word, you are winning because he has won. You are winning. When you look up and recognize that what you have is worth infinitely more than what you have lost, I say, blessed are you. When you let loose of the things of this world and you magnify his name, when you reflect to the world, there is nothing you can take from me because in this I gain more. Dear friends, you are winning. And the battle was never in doubt. I say at the same time that while great is your award in heaven, through eyes of faith, you receive it now. That in a very real sense, in a very real way, your spiritual senses, that are much more real than taste or touch or smell, they're a whole lot more real than your emotions. That through these new spiritual senses that God has given you, you will recognize that he is closer than you ever imagined, abiding in you and you in him. You recognize that he is your ultimate treasure, that that is your great heavenly reward. It's him. It's more of him. Once you've had him, you don't want anything else. I've told you often how badly I feel for the guy at Fogo de Chow coming around with the chicken. Get the chicken out of my face. I've tasted the lamb. Bring me the lamb, guy. That as you live like this, as you recognize that these spiritual senses much more real, much more lasting than the flesh that lies to you, that Christ will be so present for you. He's always been here. But that he will be so present and so real and so helpful that you can't help but sing songs of praise and be filled with great gladness and joy as you cry real tears of sorrow and real pain and suffering that you didn't sign up for. You wouldn't sign up for it. That would make you a fool. Jesus cried in the garden, Father, let's do anything else. How about that? You're free to pray that prayer, beloved. You're free to pray that prayer and say, God, if there's any other way for you to be glorified, I choose that, not this, but your will, not mine, because I know that your will leads to true joy. I know that your will will satisfy, and I don't want to be a fool. I can't trust myself. I can't trust my heart. Sometimes I can't trust my advisors, but I trust your word. So your will, not my will, and I trust you to lead me to joy. Just show me the path, give me the legs, and I'll charge hard. While the rest of the world thinks you've lost your mind. This isn't a silly joy. I I oftentimes have, right, the, the, the ongoing complaint is that I'm so serious and I'm are you ever happy? And I will tell you that I, I confess. We confess sins around here often as a staff. What was it, two two Mondays ago in staff meeting? I confessed to the staff that I was struggling with joy. I was lacking joy. But I'll let you know that when I have joy, you're not going to see me giggling like a little girl. Because that's not the joy we're looking for. We're talking about the sober unshakable, lasting joy that is not bound up up in circumstances. The joy that endures through the call you didn't want to receive. The joy that endures while all the things of this world have been stripped away. That that's the joy that he promises. And so, with that in mind, we return to Mark 15. I pray that you see this now. I pray that you see in the suffering of Jesus Christ a man charging hard after true joy, his own greatest good. The glorification of God, the exaltation of himself, and the salvation of sinners. What a deal. I pray that you see here your Savior. I pray that as we feed on Christ, that's what we're doing. I pray as I bring before you this object of your hope. This is what I'm doing. I'm showing you your treasure Y'all ever watch the Antiques Roadshow? I'm 80, so I do. And I love it, this dude will come in with some precious heirloom. (laughs) This is my my grandmother's teaspoon and I love my grandmother a whole lot. I'm just curious what it's worth. And then the guy says, oh well, I'm excited to inform you, this is worth $350,000. Oh, oh, well grandma didn't love it that much. part with it very, very quickly. I'm the appraiser on Antiques Roadshow, and I'm telling you, you've got something worth a whole lot more than grandma's teaspoon. And I'm telling you, you need to get jacked up about it. Go ahead and stand your feet, please. Reverence, a reading of God's word. We return to the 15th chapter. Verse by verse, we work through Mark's gospel. I don't want this gospel to end, frankly. Maybe that's why I'm moving so slow. But we're back in the 16th verse of chapter 15, and we're going to read all the way through verse uh, 21 this morning. This is the word of God. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. They called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, the king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. All God's people said, "Amen." you may be seated. Father God, do do what only you can do, we pray. You are our treasure, you are our reward. Help us to delight in that now. It's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. So you will likely remember that despite Pilate's constant insistence that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death, the governor had Jesus violently flogged, And then they handed him over to be crucified. Then we read here in verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. So Mark tells us that Jesus is led to the governor's headquarters. The Greek word there is praetorium. You've heard that word over these last few weeks. And so there's some speculation as to where exactly this is. Because you see, the praetorium, it does not refer to a specific location. Wherever a Roman magistrate or the praetor the stayed, that is the praetorium. So if the Romans were out in war, they're out in a field somewhere in battle, the praetor, the magistrate, the ruler, the, 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 the guy that was over the troops, his tent would become the praetorium. If they were in a city, wherever the leader and the troops stayed, that itself, maybe a, maybe a large complex would become the praetorium. So we don't know exactly where this was, but we do know for certain that this was where Pilate... And the soldiers were staying while they were there in Jerusalem. Now the fact that he uses the word palace here, it's led some people to believe that we're talking about Herod's palace. It's on the southwest side of the city. They believe that that's exactly what he's referring to here. Now they're, they're convinced then because of this, that this entire portion of Jesus' civil trial is taking place on the steps of Herod's royal compound. And this may be true. But the word palace here, it's, in Greek it's the word alus. It's the very same word that's used as courtyard, back where we read about Peter sitting out amongst the fire by the soldiers, the courtyard that was there in the high priest's house. And so this word can also mean courtyard. So based on that and the fact that in Luke 23, we're told about Pilate sending Jesus over to Herod, and then Herod sending Jesus back to Pilate. it seems like, perhaps, Herod is in fact, in his royal palace, and Pilate and the others, they're staying in the Antonio Fortress. That's just north of the Temple Mount. Now, this isn't altogether all that critical for your theology, but if you're like me, number one, you you like to picture the scene as it plays out. In addition to this, if you have any any questions, any confusions about the way the narrative plays out, sometimes you can get bogged down in that and you can't flow with what's actually happening. But the important part to know is that Jesus is led into this place. And I ask you to see the Lord's submission, to see his humility just in being led. This is the Lord of the universe. Not one Adam goes any place unless he decrees it. Mountains and stars and blue whales obey his voice. Even in his earthly ministry, he is the shepherd and the sheep follow him. He leads, they follow. And yet now we see that he's the one that's being led like an animal. He did not need to be bound up. He's going willfully. Whatever they bound him with, it was... It was pointless. He could have with but a word called down legions of angels to set him free. He went willingly. In great humility, he allowed himself to be led. All throughout this narrative, we find Jesus being led. And they called together the whole battalion. So at least some portion of the Roman guard, they've dispersed. Now you'll probably recall that when Judas and the Sanhedrin, when they led these soldiers out to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was sometime right around midnight, maybe just a bit after. And so it, it seems to me that what's happened is some of those soldiers have retired to the barracks, and they're catching some sleep. Now Mark uses the word battalion here. Spiron is, is the word. Spirion is the, is the word in Greek. And it's the same word that we translated as cohort earlier. You remember that a cohort is one-tenth of a legion. So that's as many as 600 troops is what we're talking about here. So some commentators, they doubt. They doubt that they would have called together 600 men to come and mock Jesus. But it seems to me that that's exactly what Mark is saying. That that's why he says the whole battalion. It seems to me that this is the full 600 people. At very least, it's the whole group that had gone out and arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Whatever the size, they come back together. And the soldiers that have been charged with keeping care of Jesus, maybe just a few, maybe three, four, five, six, whatever it was. That those soldiers, they were called with taking charge of Jesus, they called the other troops back together. This wasn't because they saw Jesus as some great immediate physical threat because it was time for some games. Now, in a place like Jerusalem, this royal guard, this, this Roman guard, it would not have been made up of Roman citizens. It would have been made up of non-Jewish men from surrounding areas. Now, whether Roman or not, these were highly trained soldiers, and these men had no love lost for the Jewish people, in part because the Jewish nation's refusal to honor any god but Yahweh. You see, much like the postmodern world we live in today, everybody had their own god, and they didn't really care. They didn't really care what god you worshipped as long as your god didn't infiltrate on my god, as long as your god didn't restrict you from honoring my god, and as long as your god didn't prevent you from bending your knee to the ultimate power, Rome. Look, you worship whatever God you want. Just don't forget to give a a little pinch of incense to Caesar upon your altar. But these people, the faithful amongst the Jewish people, it was truly detestable to them. They were absolutely and wholly exclusive in their worship of Yahweh, their rejection of any other gods. They would not play along with this game like the rest of the nations under Roman control. And so the religious exclusivity exclusivity, of the Jewish people, that was, that was a problem. That was off-putting to other people that had submitted to Caesar as Lord. But perhaps more than this, these soldiers would have been absolutely infuriated with the rebellions. You remember that there was insurrections, like the one that landed Barabbas in jail. That there were these religious zealots, these Jewish zealots that sought to remove Jerusalem, remove Israel from the control of Rome. And so these men, they would travel around with daggers under their cloaks and they would sneak up behind a Roman soldier and they would shiv him out. They would kill him, taking his life. And for these well-trained soldiers, you can imagine how frustrating. You can imagine how much hostility would have built up in them with this kind of warfare. And so whenever the soldiers had a hold of a Jewish man, this was an opportunity, a peculiar opportunity for them to let off some steam. You people think you're better than us? You tell us that you've been chosen by God and that this God is going to send Messiah and that you will rule the earth? We'll show you how puny. We'll show you how weak and feckless you and your so-called God really are. But now they had in their possession Jesus of Nazareth. This wasn't just any Jew. This was the man that some called king of the Jews. He said that he himself was the son of this God. And he was being accused of leading a rebellion, an insurrection. Now, true, he didn't seem to care anything about earthly thrones, and he didn't really play nice with the Jewish leaders, but it doesn't matter. This is an opportunity for us to make an example, to get out some of this frustration that we have, and probably without even fully understanding exactly why they felt the way that they did. Even hearing the words of Pilate saying, I find no guilt in this man. He's done nothing deserving of death. Even seeing the humble way, the the merciful way that Jesus dealt with the man who lost his ear as he came out to arrest him. Even seeing the meek and humble way, the silent way that Jesus endured his suffering and his accusations and all the shame that came upon him. These men had an unreasonable and an inordinate level of disdain for Jesus Christ. For reasons even they could not understand, they truly abhorred him. Dear friends, you must understand that the dark and sinful world, they will always hate the Lord of Light, even if they can't tell you why. Verse 17, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Now, you'll likely know that purple is an expensive material in the ancient Near East. It was hard to come by, and therefore, it was a color of royalty. Now, these ordinary foot soldiers, they more than likely would not have had any fine purple linen, any fine purple fabric, and so... Probably this was something that either came off of one of the soldiers or maybe even more likely than that. This was a garment that was just so worn. It was so old and tattered and worn and coarse that somebody else had thrown it out. Matthew tells us that the soldiers stripped Jesus of his clothing. Now Jesus would have been stripped for his beating. He would have been stripped for his scourging. And would you just imagine the humiliation in this ever ever since the fall of man? All the way back in the Garden of Eden, nakedness has equaled shame. You remember that we read in the beginning, Genesis two twenty five, that the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. But then the rebellion, then the sin against God and the fall. Then we read in Genesis three, beginning verse seven, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now there's no shortage of suggestions as to why this man and this woman, they went from naked and unashamed to hiding, hiding from each other, hiding from God. But there's no denying that these men who stood before Jesus Christ now, they were clothed because they knew that it was a shameful thing to be naked. And yet no matter the clothing they wore, no matter the armor that they covered up with, it was only the one that they now persecuted that could truly cover their shame. They could truly cover their guilt. And they mocked him. They stripped him of his clothing. They sneered and they laughed and they they mocked him as they stripped him down. Dear friends, this is not the thrust of this morning's message. But I cannot help but imagine there must be surely someone in this room that desperately needs to hear this more than anything else. For those of you that have been so violated. For those of you that feel like you have been so robbed of your dignity and your honor. Know that your Lord and Savior can relate. You turn and you cry out to him and he will heal you. So after the scourging, they would have put the clothes back on Jesus. and Surely you can recall the feeling of a long day at the beach, maybe two, and you've gotten a little bit too much sun. The burn is starting to set in. And then you put even a soft cotton shirt, you put your T-shirt back over your pink skin, and you know that you can feel it even now. Jesus' back wasn't sunburned. It was laid open. The sharp pieces of bone and metal from that whip had dug deep into his flesh, ripping out chunks as it came back. And so now we see Jesus. He's yet again stripped. And you can imagine the dried blood and the, the flesh that probably came with that. Now they lay this indelicate robe, this coarse piece of fabric upon his back. And listen, I, I don't want to focus too long on the physical pain. You'll notice that in the words of, of Mark throughout his gospel, he spends very little words. He, he doesn't, He doesn't speak a whole lot. doesn't waste a whole lot of words talking about the physical aspects of Jesus' persecution and death. He says things like Jesus was scourged. Jesus was crucified. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Clearly what God wants for us to see through the narrative of John Mark is more the mockery and the shame. More than the physical beating, he wants us to see the humiliation of Jesus Christ more than the anatomy of a crucifixion. He wants you to see him pouring out his wrath upon his beloved son. But the physical pain was very, very real. He was exhausted. He was abandoned. And he was hurting. Is that not the perfect recipe for a man to abandon righteousness? Listen, I've confessed to you before what an absolute wretch I become when I'm tired. I stub my toe and I am cursing the heavens. Someone offends me in some way, and I feel completely justified in whatever unholy word and whatever vicious action I take. Dear friends, I wrote this message. I was studying this message in preparation to bring it to you. I'm driving home from a party with my wife. I get a flat tire, and I'm ready to fight King Kong. I don't deserve a flat tire. And yet we see Jesus Christ perfectly enduring. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't pull back. Completely unlike Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam had every possible advantage. Perfect wife. Quit using that as an excuse. You had a perfect wife, you'd do just like Adam. She's not your problem. In a perfect place, Quit telling me if your circumstances were different, you'd do better because you wouldn't. With endless supply, quit telling me if you had a few more dollars in the bank, you'd do better because you wouldn't. And now we see Jesus Christ. He has been stripped of every earthly comfort and companionship, and perfect in his thought. Perfect in his speech, perfect in his action, perfect in his mercy, perfect in his grace, perfect in his love to the very end. Even as we see him hanging upon the cross, refusing drink that might dull his senses in some way. So committed to the righteousness of God, he would not let up from one ounce of the suffering. So now here he stands with his back bloodied and beaten and exposed. And the soldiers, they peel away his clothing. They put this rough garment upon him. And Mark tells us that they twisted together a crown of thorns. So there's, just like here, there's a great number of thorny plants in the region, and it seems to people smarter than me that more than likely, whenever you think of a crown of thorns, you're not thinking of little bitty thorns like you might have on your rose bush in your flower bed at home. This probably was something a bit more substantial, a bit more spiky, something that would have had no problem digging into the flesh of of his skull. And again, church, I ask you to think back to the garden. I ask you to think back to the rebellion of Adam that with the fall, with the sin of Adam, the sin of his wife, dragging all the rest of us with him, so went creation. Do you remember what God said in Genesis 3, verse 17? To Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. I ask you to see this church. Man would not be ashamed of his nakedness. The ground would not bring forth thorn and thistle were it not for our sin. And now here you see the son of God bearing the weight of all of it upon himself. His body scarred and beaten and bruised and bleeding. Standing in his shame completely naked before these men and then wearing upon his head a very picture of the curse that had come upon all creation, the curse that he came to bear, the curse that he came to overcome. He's wearing all of it on himself in this moment. Now, obviously, this is a mock coronation, much like what Herod's soldiers did to Jesus. You remember that? They arrayed him in splendid clothing They're having sport with Jesus. Like dressing a monkey up in a tuxedo, it was ridiculous to these men that this guy that looks so weak and so beaten and so abandoned that he should be dressed like a king, that he should be dressed like royalty. Historians tell us that Roman soldiers, they would do this very same thing with many people out on the streets, just for fun, just for sport, just for a good laugh. They would travel along the streets and they would find physically or mentally disabled people, they would do the same thing, they would dress them up and have a laugh. Isn't it ridiculous, look at this man. Look at this man with this lame leg. Look at this man that can't speak clearly. Look at this man who's dressed up like a king. Isn't this funny? Isn't this ridiculous? Doesn't it seem fitting that Jesus would share the shame of those he came to save? The Savior that had spent so much of his time associating with the outcasts and the lowly amongst all society, the deformed and the diseased, those that he came to spend his life with, those that he came to offer salvation to, doesn't it seem that he would be related to them, he would be connected to them even in this Even in this mockery as they dress him up like this, verse 18, and they began to salute him. Hail, the king of the Jews. That's the way you greet an emperor. Hail, Caesar, our victor and Lord. Now, the emperor, he demanded this response. He would take a man's life if he didn't properly greet him. But this one who stepped down from glory, this one who came to be born as a babe, the one who left the worship night and day, day and night of holy angels. This one who came, he wasn't receiving, didn't receive any such greeting. Now on Palm Sunday, there was a proper response, but all that was gone now. It was replaced by his own people demanding his death. Crucify him. Crucify him. Any who once followed him have now abandoned him. And so these soldiers, they're just following the lead of the Jewish people, aren't they? If they don't love him, what have we to fear? Hail, the king of the Jews. You can almost hear the bite in their tone, can't you? I can't hear this without hearing Carrie Camp's voice. I think back to our Tenebrae service. I don't know how many years we've done it now, but it's, Hail, the King of the Jews. Hear the bite and the contempt, the way they speak to him. Not only does this man not look like any king that they had ever known, even if he was the king of the Jews, who was this little nation under the th- thumb of Rome that we should fear them, that we should have concern or be compelled to honor their king? Verse 19, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down and homage to him. Now, in the marshy areas around the streams and around the Jordan River, there's any number of reedy type plants, and this was probably something a bit like a skinny piece of Bamboo. Now, Matthew tells us that they put this thing in Jesus' hand like a scepter. Every king needs a scepter. We read in Psalm 2 that the anointed one will reign with a rod of iron. He will dash the rulers of this world to pieces. But now he holds a fake scepter, a mock scepter, a little reed, a piece of bamboo in his hand. And even that he would not continue to hold because they took it from him. Because so they took it from him and they struck him. Perhaps driving the thorns of this fake crown deeper into his head. And then they spit on Jesus verb is in the imperfect tense. It means it was ongoing over and over and over again. Was it all 600 people? I don't know. Surely they were spitting in his face. And what you had here was their spit mixed with his blood. Running into his hair and into his beard. Getting into his eyes. You see, you kiss a king. You kiss his hands. Better yet, you kiss his feet. But the only kisses that Jesus received during this time came from the betrayer. It was Judas that passionately kissed him over and over and over again. Another mockery. Another sting. But these men, they wouldn't kiss the son. They spit on him. Everybody from every place and every time, you know what this means. To spit on a man. This is a clear message. You are lower than an animal. You're worthy of nothing more than to be treated like the dirt of the ground. I have so much content and disdain and hatred for you. You are deserving of nothing but dishonor. I spit upon you. Oh, how many men would spit on Jesus Christ today if they could get to him. But instead they spit with their voice. They spit with the words that they speak against him. And I'm sad to report that even many who call themselves Christian, they spit in the face of his bride. They dishonor his precious bride the church, and the way they handle her, and the way they trample her, and the way they use her for their own selfish gain. Now that same psalm, Psalm 2 says that we must kiss the son, lest he become angry and we perish along the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Dear friends, Jesus Christ, his wrath will burn hot when that day comes. But then we see the soldiers kneeling down in homage to Jesus. Beloved, there will come a day. I promise you that every single one of these soldiers, they know even now that there will come a day when every knee will bow, and it won't be mock homage. It won't be to make a joke out of Jesus Christ and scorn and ridicule, that even the most defiant of rebels, his knee will bow. And the most foul of mouths, they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord To the glory of God. Do you understand that that's the joy that's set before Jesus Christ? I believe that's what the angel reminded him of as he came to him in the garden. He said, Jesus, your father has not abandoned his plan. He will not forsake you to Sheol. You will rise in exaltation and at the name of you, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God. That's the joy. That's what Jesus saw. That's what he pressed hard towards in the middle of this suffering. And when they had mocked him, they were done. They were done. They were exhausted. It had lost its sense of humor. It wasn't exciting to them anymore to mock this man. So when they had mocked him, they stripped him of of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they let him out to crucify him. So they stripped away the purple cloak and surely peeling away more blood and dried skin and everything else with it. But interestingly, we're not told that the soldiers removed the crown of thorns. Maybe it was too embedded in his head to get it out. Maybe it just seemed fitting to them that he would wear this sign of his charge upon his head, the king of the Jews. They put his own clothes on him. They had to do this. This wasn't because they were tired of looking at his naked body. This wasn't a kindness This wasn't about modesty. They had to do this because Psalm 22 said so. Because the prophecy of God said that they had to strip him again at the cross and that they would gamble for his clothes. It reads like this, they divide my garments among them for my clothes they cast lots. These soldiers had to put the clothes of Jesus back on him because they had to gamble for those very same clothes later. And again we see Jesus being led, being led to his crucifixion. The end is almost here. Strengthened by the promises of the Father. Strengthened by the word of the angel in the garden. I have to imagine running through Jesus' mind was, I'm headed towards exaltation. The glorification of God, my ultimate joy, the salvation of men. Keep going. Keep moving. I've got to get to that hill. Clearly, we're not going to get to Simon today, but it took great effort. He was on his very last leg. He was about to give out completely. But John tells us that Jesus heads out of this praetorium and he's he's bearing his own cross. And this statement is true. It is the inerrant word of God. But it wasn't his cross, was it? It became his in his union with us. But we earned it. We deserved it. And he bore it. He carried it. Dear friends, I pray that you would see the epitome of Jesus' humiliation just in this. We have no real concept because the cross has become a fashion statement. We wear crosses on our jewelry. We get crosses tattooed on our body, and this is good. Nothing wrong with that. I've bought each of my girls a cross necklace, and they wear those along with the widow's mite that I brought back from Israel. And these things, they bring me great joy. We should celebrate the cross. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. And the empty tomb that waits on the backside, that is where our salvation was purchased. That is where we most fully see God's glorious grace. But for the first century Jewish man or first century Greek man, this was not an honorable thing. This was nothing but shame. It was unthinkable that people should worship a man who died upon a cross. And we see here Jesus carrying his cross. This was probably just the cross beam. This would have weighed somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 pounds. The whole cross itself probably would have been four or 500 pounds. A, a, A normal man isn't going to be able to carry that, especially not one that's been flogged like this. So probably carrying his cross beam, he's headed towards Golgotha. And no one looked at him and thought, now there's a show of honor. I cannot wait to have a replica of that hanging on my living room wall. That cross in a very, very clear picture. This is a condemned man. He has been tried and condemned. He is to be counted amongst the very worst criminals, the worst kind of man, the kind of man that you're to hate and despise and to avoid. This is a cursed man. That's the story of the man carrying the cross. That's the picture of this one that is carrying his cross. Everyone that laid eyes on him, they knew that this was a picture of nothing less than hatred from the world. Shame and contempt. And then what waited for him on the other side was nothing more than extreme suffering and inexplicable death. That's the story of the cross. Hatred and shame and suffering and death. And everyone knew it. That's what made Christianity such an impossibly different religion. We worship heroes that win their earthly battles. We fall after those that get immediate vengeance on their enemies. We celebrate saviors that don't lay down their life like this, not in despicable ways, maybe jumping upon a bomb, but not as a criminal, not as the worst kind of criminal. Dear friends, we don't understand, we don't comprehend what the cross meant. You see, we turn the cross into something that it's not. But if you fully recognize what it meant, the hatred, the shame, the suffering, the violent death, If you understand what the cross really meant, then you would recognize why it takes a supernatural work of God for anyone to embrace it or the one who hung upon it. That's what made the call of Jesus back in Mark 8 so truly remarkable. Turn there. We're going to finish here. I know we're short on time, but you need to see this. Mark 8 will begin in verse 34. You know the verse, at least the first part of it. Mark 8 verse 34, and Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is the cost. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself and you must take up your cross. Now people are so twisted this saying. They're so twisted the idea of taking up your cross that anytime a man's marriage gets hard, anytime his finances get tight, some well-meaning friend will say, everyone has their cross to bear. And we say this again because we hope that that's all it means. We hope that that's all it means to bear our cross. We hope that's all it means to actually follow after Jesus Christ. Because again, I say, it doesn't take any supernatural work of God to embrace that. You're telling me all that following Jesus Christ means, (coughs) excuse me, is I might have a nagging wife and my knees might be bad by the time I'm 40? friends, you must understand that there was no one who saw Jesus carrying this cross on his path to Golgotha and thought, man, poor guy. The common and everyday troubles of this world sure do have him down. Hatred and shame and pain and death. That's what they saw. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, then you must embrace that. You must embrace the hatred of the world. Even many who claim the name of Jesus Christ, they will hate you. They will accuse you. They will condemn you. And you will feel real shame and humiliation. As they will take this gospel that you proclaim and they will tell you that it is the epitome of hatred, of bigotry, of closed-mindedness, that is truly offensive. You will suffer. And some of you may very well die. If not physically, you certainly must die to the old life. You certainly must die to your selfishness. This is why Jesus says you must deny yourself because your self hates those things. Myself looks at those things and says, Don't like that. I'm not signing up for that. So Jesus says, You must deny yourself. Do you remember when we studied this passage months ago? We talked about this word deny. Or neomai, that's the word in Greek. It's the same word that's used to Peter when he denies Jesus three times. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you're going to have any hope of enduring this cross, of embracing this cross, of hatred and shame and pain and death, then you must deny yourself like Peter denied me. I don't know that man. I want nothing to do with him. If that's the picture of denial. But if our efforts last week pay off, if you're thinking with me, if you're being honest with yourself, you're thinking, I get it. I, I get it. My only hope of embracing the cross, I can't follow Jesus if I don't embrace the cross. My only hope of breaking the, embracing the cross is denying myself, but I can't do it. It doesn't matter how long I stare at myself in the mirror and wag my finger like I'm talking to a dog and say, no, no. doesn't matter how long I sit in this place and I convince myself, I'm going to embrace the cross. I'm going to suffer well with Jesus Christ. Because the minute I hit that door and the world punches me in the mouth, I drop that cross quicker than I know what happened. So if you're thinking rationally, you're hearing this and going, but I can't. The cross is detestable. May I call it a Scandal. And white knuckling, bearing down, just denying myself, that hasn't been working very well. At least that's my experience. Maybe you've mastered it. Come talk to me afterwards, if so. That's why we read the rest of the verse, because Jesus is making an argument here. It's the next sentence. He says, for, to support the argument that I just made, to support self-denial, to support taking up your cross, for, whoever would lose his life, excuse me, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Sounds like a nonsensical statement, doesn't it? Whoever would save your life will lose it. Whoever will lose your life will save it. Surely Jesus is speaking of life in two different ways here, right? Surely what he talks about, when he talks about the life that we should not seek to save, it's parallel with denying ourselves. Parallel with avoiding the cross. It seems to me that what he's saying here is that life that's opposed to the cross that life which seeks comfort, that life which seeks to preserve your earthly life, that life that seeks to be loved by the world instead of hated, that life that seeks to go around all suffering, that that life, if you seek to save that life, if you make that life your ultimate goal. And dear friends, that's the way the world lives. Many that call themselves Christians, we say that we desire to suffer with Christ. Not that we desire the suffering, but that we desire him. We say that we will endure suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, and then we build our lives in such a way to avoid suffering at every cost. Jesus is saying, if you live like this, you will lose your life. So surely that life must have to do with following Jesus Christ, because that was the goal in the sentence before, wasn't it? So this life must have to do with following Jesus Christ. We follow Jesus Christ. What kind of life do we give? It's eternal life. So saying, if you seek to save your comfortable life, if you seek to save your pain-free life, if you seek to save the life that the world applauds you for, there's nothing more damning than the world can say than everybody loves Josh. He's a swell guy. If that's all you ever hear about yourself, be very, very careful. If you seek to be loved by the world, if you seek to be comfortable in the world, if you seek to avoid suffering, you will lose eternal life. But if you lose that earthly life, if you let go of that earthly life, if you let go of the comforts of this world, you will gain eternal life. You will follow after me and you will have true life. If you suffer for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, sounds just like Matthew 5 that we read last week, doesn't it? Blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you if you're persecuted and lied about on my account, for great is your reward if you suffer with me. So Jesus is saying, you're going to come to points in your life when you could go around suffering. You go to the right, you go to the left, but you know the path with me, the path of righteousness, it goes straight through suffering. It means that the old Jew is going to have to die, but here is the path. And if you choose to take that path, because you know that to take any other path would dishonor me, then you shall find eternal life. You shall find yourself truly blessed. You will gain this lasting life with me. Are you following the argument? He's not done because there's another four. Four, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? He says if you seek to make this comfortable life, this worldly life, your goal, even if you succeed and you gain absolutely everything, see Solomon. Even if you succeed and you gain everything that this world has to offer, you can't then cash it into this life for your soul. This isn't Chuck E. Cheese where you take your tickets up and buy your soul back at the end of the day. He's saying, so what have you gained? Because all the stuff that you think you've gained, all the treasures that Solomon had, they're a vapor and they're gone. And you've lost your soul, which is eternal life, which is being with me. You're the ultimate loser. You've gained nothing. This supports that first argument, doesn't it? You see the way it's flowing? You think that you've saved your life. You think that you've taken the path to life. In fact, you follow followed death. You've lost your soul, and you cannot trade even all that this world has to offer in exchange for your soul. Sounds an awful lot like he's telling us to go after that which is best, doesn't it? Sounds an awful lot like he's saying, cherish the greater more than the lesser. See what is worth more and charge hard after that. Keep going. There's one more Four. Four. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Mess around and lose your soul. You will find that at the end of this thing, you call me Lord. You believe that you are mine, and I will say I never knew you. You will find that I am ashamed of you. That to be ashamed of Christ is the same thing to sell our soul for the things of this world. It is the same thing to seek to hang on to this earthly life. It's the same thing to avoid the cross. You understand? But to be proud of the name of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, is not just with our voice, but with all of our life. That is to find eternal life in Jesus Christ. That is to take up our cross. That is to die to our old self. That is to walk into eternity. You see the argument. But he's saying it's not just about avoiding the cross and avoiding the pain and avoiding the suffering just for the sake of saving physical life. It's shame. Students, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you go to school. And live a Christian life. Proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that you are. I pray that you are. But I know what you're up against with some of your friends. I pray on Wednesday night, God, make our kids weird. Make them the weird kids. But I've come to the realization that the world doesn't think you're weird. Many of them hate you. They think your message is bigoted. It is closed-minded. In many circles. Even in many Christian Circles, you are safe being just about anything other than a Bible-believing, purity-seeking, sin-confronting Christian. Again, not just in schools, many church houses. He says, if you're ashamed of me, if you shy back from this, you will find me ashamed of you at the end of this life. I hope you see this. Dear friends, I pray that you see this. Or did you see the power and the truth of this message? If not, it's my fault because I've messed it up. Or perhaps you don't have ears to see or eyes to hear because the message is true from the, from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, it's a problem then. When you find yourselves wanting to pull back, when you find yourselves wanting to shy away, when you find that old self saying, look, let's just go this way. Why do we always have to do the hard thing? Why do you always have to be the bad guy? Why do you have to have all the uncomfortable conversations? Why do you have to be the guy that everybody hates? When you constantly feel that coming against you, your problem isn't I need to run harder. Your problem is I need to see clear. But you cry out to God, you say, God, I'm not seeing you right because if I was, I wouldn't sell my soul so cheaply. If I really saw the treasure that you had for me, I would be running after that and nothing would be able to hold me back. So we're right back to where we were last week, aren't we? Seeing the glory of God. Seeing the glory of God. Eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. And then the faith to charge hard after it. Friends, that's what we're seeing. I pray that's what you're seeing as we look to your treasure. I pray that as we sing songs in just a minute, I know we're going to be a few minutes late to Sunday school. I'm sorry. But as we sing songs of praise to God, I pray that in the middle of this, you're seeking to see your treasure. You're seeking to enjoy your treasure even now. I pray as we move closer to the cross, you see your ultimate hope in him. And your excitement and your joy, your expectation, it only grows. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this people, Father, and their willingness to, uh, willingness to hang in there as we walk through this word together. We just want to see you. You are our treasure. You are our hope. You are our only source of joy. So, Father, we long for more of you. We seek to worship you with our words now, and not just with our lips, but with our hearts. So, Father, glorify yourself through us and in us now. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.